John Pfeffer is the Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He is the author of numerous books, including North Korea, South Korea, U.S. Policy and the Korean Peninsula. We will be talking about North Korea, President Trump, and the geopolitics of crazy. Welcome aboard the geopolitics and empire ship, Mr. Pfeffer. Thanks for having me on board. You just released a great two-minute video via the Institute for Policy Studies on YouTube which summarizes, in a nutshell, the current Korean crisis. You've described it in previous articles as the geopolitics of crazy. One thing that bothers me are some of the one-sided views on this situation coming from Westerners who have never been to North Korea and shoulder all the blame on the Korean regime, when I think a large part of the blame can be placed also on U.S. policy. You have visited North Korea, and in fact, I'm considering it myself, to start us off could you tell us about your visits there in the 1990s and the 2000s, and what was it like being on the ground? Sure. So I went there as a representative of a American organization, um, the American Friends Service Committee, Quaker organization. And AFSC uh, runs several projects inside North Korea, um, uh, primarily agricultural projects, uh, helping agricultural uh, farms, helping farms, um, and uh, went there to see what other kind of exchanges uh, we could set up with North Korea. Uh, took three trips there, um, managed to set up a medical exchange and kind of lay the groundwork for a couple of other exchanges. It was a very difficult period, of course, for North Korea. Uh, the country entered into a, a famine and mid-1990s collapse of industry and agriculture, partly as a result of their own economic choices, partly as a result of the collapse of communism and the failure of, or, the, or the transfer, rather, over to hard currency trade with China and Russia, and which made oil, in particular, extremely expensive for North Korea, and partly as a result of, of natural disasters, floods, uh, drought, that took place in, in 1994, 1995. So the situation on the ground is pretty bad in North Korea, um, economically speaking. Uh, but still there was, you know, negotiations going on, ongoing with, uh, with other countries. Uh, the agreed framework with the United States was still in place, uh, though there was um, some backtracking, if you will, on both sides, by the United States and by North Korea. Um, it was a, it's a difficult country. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, there's a lot of human rights abuses. Uh, the, it's obviously not a democracy. Um, and uh, the, the country is ruled by basically a family um, and underneath the family, uh, a, a party and the military. Uh, so it's very tightly controlled, um, not a particularly easy place to, to live. Um, but, uh, but going there was, I think, important for at least understanding uh, the North Korean perspective um, and uh, certainly the history that North Korea has um, experienced over the last 70 years or so. And speaking of the history, uh, it seems with the hysterical headlines, uh, that we are uh, that we read about some of the Hollywood propaganda films, such as the interview, I, I think, and 
all of these headlines with Rocketman and, and Dotard. It's kind of become cartoonish, the, the way people view North Korea today. Uh, but we can't really d begin discussing it until we discuss the, the Forgotten War uh, in 1950. Could you s briefly set a little bit of the, his the historical context, which we would need to know to understand the current conflict? Sure. So, of course, uh, Korea is divided at the end of World War II um, in 1945, uh, basically into a U.S. sphere and a Soviet sphere. And the Soviet troops come in. Uh, previously, yeah, I should say, that Korea had been colonized by Japan for, you know, since 1905, 1910. So uh, both the United States and the Soviet Union are replacing a Japanese colonial regime. Uh, the Soviet troops come in. Um, they bring with them... Kim Il-sung, uh, who had been an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter and had spent most of World War II in the Soviet Union. Uh, and he becomes, at a quite early age, the leader of the country. In the South, uh, the United States basically backs Syngman Rhee, who had also been in exile during the war. So you have this kind of uh, setup of, uh, of a North that's basically communist and the South basically capitalist. Um, the uh, the two sides um, are not particularly happy with one another. There is, of course, talk of the reunification of the peninsula. Uh, the North would like to do it under its own auspices, the South under its own auspices. There are clashes along uh, the border uh, that take place between 1945 and 1950, uh, as well as the suppression of a variety of rebellions, including most famously in Cheju Island in 1948. Um, so there's, there's clearly a great deal of sympathy for, uh, shall we say, either communism or a kind of nationalism in the South. Uh, and there's sympathy for capitalism in the North, uh, but most of those people are kicked out of the country. Um, so this is the stage that's set up by 1950 when the North, uh, under Kim Il-sung, decides finally, after getting Soviet backing for what had Stalin had previously thought was a lousy idea, uh, invades the South. Um, initially has some tremendous success pushing uh, the, the South Korean army and later the United States and others under a UN flag all the way down to what was called the Pusan perimeter around the southern city of Pusan. Uh, MacArthur intervenes in the famous Incheon landing uh, further up the peninsula, pushes North Korea all the way back up, or North Korean military rather, all the way up to the north to a very small portion near the Chinese border, at which point Chinese volunteers enter the war, about a million Chinese volunteers, push U.S. Army all the way back down. And eventually, uh, for the last two years of the war, there's, it's basically um, a fight over a small amount of territory near that same divided border. Uh, the United States bombs you know, North Korea to rubble, basically. Um, uh, and uh, it's a terrible conflict in terms of the amount of civilian loss as well as the devastation of uh, especially North Korea. Armistice signed in 1953. Uh, there's no official peace treaty, so the war doesn't officially end, and a kind of frozen conflict settles upon the peninsula after 1953 that lasts basically until today. Now, there are numerous chess pieces on the Korean game board, so to speak. We've got the unfinished World War 
to history, as you've just mentioned. Um, I would I would think also it's a great pretext to boost uh, Pentagon military spending. Um, Korea is could also be considered perhaps a pawn in the greater game between the U.S. and China. I think it's uh, perhaps providing a somewhat superficial excuse for the Pentagon to station missile bases around uh, China. Could you speak to some of these geopolitical variables and others um, that factor into U.S., Korean, and Chinese interests? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as you and your listeners know, the Cold War kind of ended uh, officially back in uh, 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that was basically the Cold War in Europe, or if you will, Europe and former Soviet Union. But the Cold War really hasn't ended in East Asia, Northeast Asia. So you still have a standoff on the Korean Peninsula, but more, uh, more widely, you have a standoff between more or less China, Russia, and North Korea on one side, and the United States, Japan, and South Korea on the other side. Now, it's not quite the classic Cold War standoff that we're familiar with from you know, Moscow-Washington days, because of course the United States and China have a, a pretty in-depth economic relationship, and they cooperate on a number of other issues. Um, there is, of course, uh, cooperation between South Korea and China as well. Uh, most recently, an agreement finally to end a standoff around a anti-missile defense system that the United States has given or imposed upon South Korea, depending on your point of view. Um, the standoff has produced, you know, uh, or continued, shall we say, uh, U.S. military presence in Asia. The United States has the largest military presence in the region, uh, much more sophisticated even than China. Um, and it is, of course, uh, joined by a pretty substantial South Korean conscription army, as well as Japan, which, even though it's supposed to have a peace constitution, has one of the top uh, military budgets in the world and some pretty sophisticated military hardware. Um, North Korea, obviously, from mid-1970s on, with the gradual decline of its economy, and then more precipitously in the 1990s, after the collapse of its industry, has found itself pretty much outgunned, not only regionally, but even just specifically on the Korean Peninsula. A nuclear weapons program, from North Korea's point of view, is not only a deterrence, a way of preventing any other country from attacking at first, but also a way of kind of evening the military balance on the Korean Peninsula. North Korea was clearly uh, not able to keep pace with South Korea in terms of conventional military spending, conventional armaments. A nuclear weapon basically evens the playing field from North Korea's point of view. But, of course, that sets into motion a pretty uh, deep conflict, not only with the United States, South Korea, and Japan, but even, frankly, with China, I mean, China's not happy with North Korea's nuclear program. It doesn't want an additional nuclear power on its border, particularly one that's, um, that doesn't listen to what China has to say. Um, basically, North Korea and Chinese uh, relations have never been particularly good, uh, but particularly around the nuclear program, they've worsened. So... Uh, as you point out, you know, the, the nuclear program serves, North Korea's military in general, serves as a convenient excuse for the United States to maintain that military presence. Um, you know, 100,000 plus uh, soldiers, 
as well as you know, close to half of, uh, of U.S. military assets are based in the Pacific, if you include Hawaii, Guam. Um, so North Korea serves as a, as a pretty useful um, rationale also for maintenance of military bases, obviously in South Korea, but also in Japan, most of which are located in Okinawa. The uh, United States insists that those military bases are necessary because of what they call the tyranny of distance. In other words, uh, they have to have assets close enough to whatever potential conflict might break out in the Taiwan Strait or on the Korean Peninsula. So uh, the United States also, of course, has, with the Pacific pivot of the Obama administration, but other Pacific kind of plans prior to that, been interested in containing China. In other words, preventing China from, uh, on a large scale, kind of displacing the United States as a, as a superpower, but also regionally in, in Asia, preventing China from basically becoming the, the top dog militarily. It's already the top dog economically. There's not much the United States can do about that. But at least it's trying to contain it militarily. So as you said, you know, uh, the United States has maintained bases throughout the region in part to contain China militarily. Um, and it is, uh, as used North Korea as a more convenient excuse uh, to maintain those bases and maintain military presence, in part because, as I said, the United States and China have a pretty good economic relationship. And even though anti-Chinese rhetoric does play well, say, during an election campaign, it's a little bit more difficult to maintain uh, once the candidate becomes president, as we've seen quite clearly with Donald Trump, who was relentlessly anti-China as a candidate and has become, it seems, best buddies with Xi Jinping after the Chinese leader visited the United States, and then most recently with Donald Trump visiting Beijing. And uh, one of the most important points I think you make in some of your recent articles and, and your writings uh, online on the Foreign Policy Focus website, as well as your own website, uh, you wrote a piece titled Trump the Anti-Gorbachev. Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to meet with former President Gorbachev in Moscow, uh, regarding the U.S. position toward Russia, he said, we don't need a Pax Americana, we need to dialogue on equal footing. I think this is the same principle that applies to U.S. policy toward uh, North Korea, as you mentioned in your articles. Diplomacy can get deals done, and that means giving countries a seat at the negotiating table. Surprisingly, just today, Rex Tillerson, the U.S. Secretary of State, had said that he envisions the U.S. Uh, and Korea holding talks. Could you explore this solution for us? Is this the best option to solve this U.S.-North Korean crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Donald Trump basically has only one, shall we say, foreign policy principle. <laughs> he doesn't think geostrategically. He doesn't think geopolitically. He's only interested in destroying everything that Barack Obama did as president. Um, tear up the Iran agreement, destroy detente with Cuba pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. Um, and with North Korea, well, there's actually nothing to destroy because the Barack Obama administration didn't really do anything with North Korea. It pursued a policy of strategic patience, which was basically waiting until either North Korea collapsed or knuckled under to U.S. and international uh, economic pressure which didn't happen. And so there's really no agreement. There's no negotiating framework 
for Donald Trump to tear up, which is a good thing uh, in this one case, because it does allow Donald Trump to say, hey, I did something that Obama didn't do. I negotiated with North Korea and ended this nuclear problem once and for all. Now, of course, he could claim to do that with a military attack as well. That's something we uh, obviously hope he doesn't do. But I do think there is still room for negotiations, as Rex Tillerson said, and even as Donald Trump said in a kind of offhand remark during this trip when he said that he's willing to sit down with pretty much anyone to talk, uh, and that would include Kim Jong-un. On other occasions, he's referred to as a pretty smart cookie. Uh, And Donald Trump seems to have no problem sitting down with dictators all around the world. Um, So there should be no kind of human rights concern from his point of view uh, in sitting down with Kim Jong-un. What would it look like specifically? Well, um, you know, the the Russians and the Chinese have put forward uh, what they call a freeze for a freeze proposal, which would mean that North Korea would suspend uh, its missile tests, perhaps its nuclear tests. Uh, The United States would suspend its military exercises in the region. The U.S. has said that it's not really interested in that uh, because that would reward North Korea's bad behavior. North Korea, however, has said it would be interested in that. Um, So, I mean, there's the basis for a possible start, uh, the first step of de-escalation. I think the most important thing is that the two sides have to enter in with no preconditions. Uh, Previously, one of the reasons why there was no movement toward negotiations during the Obama administration because the Obama administration maintained that the, that North Korea had to basically pledge to give up its nuclear weapons mm-hmm. before it would even sit down at the table, and North Korea was not interested in doing that. Uh, interestingly, it seems as though the Trump administration is not holding to that particular precondition. Um, so I think there there is, um, in other words, uh, room for especially just the two leaders to sit down um, and kind of, uh, have a, if you will, a Reykjavik experience. Uh, that was when Gorbachev and, uh, Reagan went off for a walk in the woods in Iceland, uh, back in the eighties and Reagan proposed getting rid of all nuclear weapons, which was a big surprise, <laughs> surprise Gorbachev, surprise Reagan's own advisors. Um, but there was a kind of uh, a chemistry, if you will, between those two leaders one could imagine a kind of chemistry between uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. They, they share uh, some similarities in terms of their um, uh, the fact that they're really not um, kind of born politicians, uh, but they are born to the elite. Uh, they are, um, I think, both kind of willing to take uh, unusual position, positions. Uh, they have a certain flexibility as authoritarian type leaders. Um, so uh, they could have a kind of meeting of minds, if you will, uh, if they sat down and kind of work out a trade that would basically um, have North Korea uh, commit at first to freezing its nuclear program, possibly even rolling it back, the United States beginning to roll back economic sanctions and holding up the offer of access to the global economy to North Korea, as well as, and this is something that North Korea is, I think, very interested in, 
a recognition of North Korea as a sovereign state. Um, United States, Japan, South Korea don't actually recognize North Korea diplomatically, even though North Korea does sit in the UN, obviously. Um, so that's something that North Korea really wants. It wants to be uh, have a seat at the table um, politically as well as economically. And just to be safe, we could throw Dennis Rodman into the mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was the one kind of point of access during the Obama administration was Dennis Rodman, uh, you know, going to, to Pyongyang. And, you know, I would say that basically Donald Trump is the Dennis Rodman of politics. You know, I mean, here's a guy who is is not buttoned down in any respect uh, and is pretty freewheeling in his, his political style. Um so, you know, again, it's, it's conceivable that, that Kim Jong-un would find a, a kindred spirit in Donald Trump, just as he did with Dennis Rodman. And briefly, what of the worst case scenario? Um, as you mentioned, China and North Korea's behavior does, is rational. If North, um, if North Korea does something irrational and stupid, such as start a war, China said they wouldn't back Korea. However, China has stated they would defend Korea, if the U.S. initiates another, I would say, illegal preemptive war, uh, North Korea and Iran seem to be an entirely different ball game than, say, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, or Libya. And it seems that any any action that would uh, happen could possibly lead to a third world war. And it seems that both Rocket Man and Dotard are summoning the ghost of President Nixon and his madman theory. What are your thoughts on the worst case scenario and the possibility of a greater war? Well, the worst case scenario is, of course, always there. I mean, it's even there when, you know, when the two sides are talking to one another um, because of the risk of miscalculation, the risk of misinterpretation, the risk of just basic mistakes. Um, North Korea, uh, I think, recognizes that any kind of attack it would launch against South Korea, against the United States or Japan, would be literally suicidal. Uh, it doesn't have the military capability of standing up to any one of those, much less all three of them. Um, its nuclear capability is is unknown, but my best guess is that it's pretty um, pretty limited, uh, and it's not even clear whether it could deliver uh, a nuclear weapon in any way, shape, or form. Um, so, in any case, I think North Korea knows this. It would only launch an attack if it felt it had absolutely no other choice. Um, and the, the goal then is to ensure that we offer it some choices. We don't want it ever to be in a position which is backed up against the wall and, and feels it has to, to lash out militarily. Uh, the United States, well, I think, you know, the Pentagon has a pretty level-headed approach to this. It knows what the casualty figures will be. It's been gaming out a Korean War for uh, a second Korean War, that is, for ever since the uh, armistice in 1953. It knows that North Korea, even though it has limited nuclear capabilities, has significant enough conventional capabilities to kill a lot of people, um, and then possibly chemical weapons as well that could introduce another element uh, to the equation. Uh, and so, you know, uh, a million people dead in Korea, many dead in Japan. Um, Pentagon obviously does not want that uh, and has consistently 
said that you know it's necessary to to find some other solution. Problem, of course, is that Donald Trump um, a uh, likes the idea of kind of cutting Gordian knots with a with a military sword, uh, and b might believe in the efficacy of missile defense over and above what even the Pentagon believes in, in terms of what, uh, what our batteries can shoot down. So that's a problem. If Donald Trump actually thinks that our missile defense system can protect against a retaliatory strike, he might be inclined to, to deliver a first strike against North Korea. So that's basically the, the, the worst case scenario. And as you said, uh, it has the risk of escalating if the United States strikes first and China comes in on North Korea's side. Okay, and is there anything perhaps that I've missed uh, or do you have any final thought or comment to leave us with regarding North Korea, Trump, and the geopolitics uh, of crazy? Well, a couple of things. I guess I'd I'd say that, you know, South Korea has a new leadership uh, with Moon Jae-in. Uh, and that adds a kind of new twist to the situation. Moon Jae-in campaigned on, you know, having a different policy toward North Korea. He hasn't been able to implement that, obviously, because of the current circumstances, but he's still interested in doing that. And, and I think that is very different from the last 10 years of conservative rule in South Korea, which provided a kind of check on any U.S. efforts to, to reach out to North Korea. So that that's a positive thing. And then I would say that North Korea, uh, it's important to recognize that the country is changing, even if the leadership isn't exactly changing, even though you know, the political structures are, remain pretty much intact. But economically, the country is, has been changing on the ground as a result of market influences. Um, and, and that's important to consider because, you know, there's a, somehow an expectation that if we reach out to North Korea, we, we negotiate with North Korea, and we get a, an agreement with North Korea, we're basically preserving that regime in aspect uh, without recognizing that the country is changing and that any kind of engagement with the country will potentially accelerate that change to the benefit, I think, of, of the people in that country. So that's a positive that should be entered into the equation. All right. Some good news there. Your websites are johnpfeffer.com and fpif.org. You have numerous books available on Amazon uh, and elsewhere. Uh, you're also on Twitter. How can people best follow and support your work? Uh, go into FPIF, go into my website, um, buying my books. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm writing on Korea pretty much, you know, at least a couple of pieces every, every month. So, um, and you can find that when I have the time to update my website uh, at my website at johnpfeffer.com. Okay, well, thank you, Mr. Pfeffer. I still have not learned to love the bomb, but let's hope diplomacy wins in the end. Sounds good. Thanks for, uh, for having me on your show.